John chapter 5. John chapter 5, our text this morning is verse, begins at verse 18 and extends to verse 30. As, we, as you turn here, one of the things I would simply observe is that Jesus here is establishing that in fact he is God, that he does what the Father does or as the Father does. And that's not simply an abstract doctrine. Uh, uh, our youngest actually had a, a homework assignment for his Bible class where he actually had to read something about the deity of Christ. And, and that's important, not just because it's some kind of academic exercise. It's important uh, because if, if Jesus isn't God, then he can't save us. If Jesus isn't God, then the assurance of pardon in him, we have redemption from our sins, that all things are united in him, things in heaven, things on earth, that's all poppycock. If Jesus isn't God, then we have no more hope than the lost person out in the world. And so this isn't simply some kind of of academic thing to try to figure out, okay, Jesus is man, Jesus is God, how does this work? No, it's for us and our salvation. That's That's why this is important. This has everything to do with your eternity that starts now and will last to the end of the age and beyond. And so with that in mind, then we, we come with, with eyes that are, that are turned to this text, verses 18 to 30, not as some kind of game to figure out, but as something that has to do with our hearts. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to move among us this morning and help us to understand what he has for us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Triune God, we do come asking that you would open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Spirit, we confess uh, that what we are going to read can perhaps feel a little opaque or a little difficult to understand, or even to, though we might understand the words, not understand its import for our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray, illuminate our minds, but above all, open our hearts that we might receive all that you have for us in Jesus Christ this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So T.F. Torrance was a 20th century Scots Presbyterian theologian, and he once told a story about his experience as a chaplain in the Allied army during World War II. Torrance was serving with the king's own royal rifles, uh, and this part of the Allied forces was in Italy in late 1944. Um, The objective was to claim a wall behind which the Axis forces, uh, the Germans and the Italians especially, had lined up behind. It was really actually a foolish charge, although eventually the Allies secured uh, the spot and began uh, and continued their march through Italy uh, to come through Germany on the backside. There were a number of Scots and Brits who were killed, and so Torrance, who had been serving as a chaplain, was pressed into duty as a stretcher bearer, carrying many from the front lines to the back lines where they might die in peace. Torrance picks up the story, speaking of one man. When daylight filtered through, I I came across a young soldier, he wrote, a Private Phillips, scarcely 20 years old, lying mortally wounded on the ground, who clearly had not long to live. As I knelt down over him, uh, he said to me, Padre, is God like Jesus? I assured him that he was. The only God there is, the God who had come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us, poured out his love to us as our Savior. Jesus is the only God there is. There is no other God besides him. That's what Torrance is saying, but that's also what our passage is trying to teach us. And yet, in our passage, Jesus will talk about his relationship with God as the relationship of a son to a father. Why does he do this? Why does Jesus speak of his relationship with God as as the relationship of a son to a father? What what does it mean? Well, he does it because our, our minds struggle, our finite, limited minds struggle to conceive of God eternally related in three persons. And so to help us conceive this, Jesus tells us, well, I haven't come to do my own will. Rather, I've I've come to do exactly what the Father does. And the implication that we're to draw from Jesus's words is that that if Jesus does exactly what the Father does, then Jesus and the Father are in fact one. That Jesus is the only God there is. 
Now, the upshot of that for us, for you and me, sitting here in Memphis, Tennessee in the year 2022 is actually quite simple. If Jesus is the only God there is, if God has shown us his face in Jesus, then, then when we put our trust in Jesus, we are trusting God himself. We're not trusting a sage. We're not trusting a teacher. We're not trusting a, a great leader. We are trusting, we, when we receive Jesus, when we rest upon him alone for salvation, we are actually trusting God. The Jews in our passage this morning, they understood that's exactly what Jesus was claiming for himself. I decided to put verse 18 with this section rather than the section before, because it largely sets the stage for Jesus's response here. Now, the Jews, though they complained about Jesus breaking the Sabbath in the previous section, have largely left the Sabbath issue behind. Verse 18 tells you that, that they want to kill him, right? That's what it says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not because he was breaking the Sabbath. No, they were concerned, first of all, that Jesus was calling God his father. But secondly, and most more importantly, the reason why they wanted to kill him is because this claim that God was his father and that he was God's son meant that Jesus saw himself to be equal with God. And if Jesus is equal with God, that means then that Jesus is God. Now, though the Jews were disturbed by that claim, we're not surprised by it, are we? Even if we've just been paying attention to John's gospel as we've been working through it through the fall and now into the winter, we've seen over and again that, that, that the apostle John has been trying to drive us to this conclusion, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so we heard at the very beginning of this gospel, what? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We also heard in that first chapter that, that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side or who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. He has made him known to us. And when Jesus confronts Nathaniel, you remember what Nathaniel says in chapter 1? He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then from that, we've, we've seen signs and miracles. We've heard Jesus call himself God's Son, the Son of Man. We've seen others call him the Messiah. And so by the time we get here to John chapter 5, we're not surprised that Jesus is claiming to be equal with God, that Jesus is claiming he is God. But it's, it's surprising to the Jews. And so in order to make this plain, not just to the Jews, but also to you and me, who Jesus is and what he's come to do, what we have starting in verse 19 and extending to the end of chapter 5 is Jesus' longest uninterrupted discourse in the entirety of John's gospel. And this discourse, Jesus is trying to establish for us who he is, what he's come to do, and, and especially that he is God. God for us and for our salvation. Notice the way he does that. He, he says this first by telling us that the Son does as the Father does. The Son does as the Father does. 
Now, one of the things to notice is, is how this section is actually bookended. Uh, it's one of the places where ESV Bibles don't help us in the way the paragraphs are divided. You need to know that the Greek New Testament actually doesn't have, uh, as it was originally written, doesn't have paragraph markers. It was actually one long-running text. It's a convention of English applied to both the Greek New Testament and also to our English translations to try to figure out where the paragraphs are, where the sections are. In our reading this morning, I read to verse 30 because I think the text actually gives us a clue about the paragraph, about the section. And it does so in that kind of bookending or framing device that we've noted several times along the way as we've worked our way through various biblical books. You see this bookending or framing first in verse 19. Look at it. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Now look at verse 30. What does Jesus say? I can do nothing on my own. So, so those two phrases, they're, they're not put there by accident. They actually serve as a frame or as a set of bookends, marking out a, a, a section as a way of, of helping us see, oh, this is the section John wants us to focus on. But those phrases, the son can do nothing of his own accord, I can do nothing on my own, they also flavor everything else that comes in between. Because Jesus is saying to us, I've not come to do my own will. I've not come to, to carry out my own mission. I've not come to act independently. I'm not on my own errand. No, I've come to do the will of another. I've come to do my Father's will. I've come to accomplish His work. Again, we've already heard this in John's Gospel. In John chapter 4, verse 38, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. But here he tells us how that plays out. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. There's a kind of parabolic language here. What's pictured here is a kind of apprenticeship, something that Jesus would have been familiar with growing up in Joseph's house. Joseph was a carpenter, right? How did Jesus, his son, learn to be a carpenter? How did others who might have come and attached themselves to, to Joseph's practice, to his carpenter shop, how would they learn to have been a carpenter? Well, Jesus would have been shown by his father how to use the various tools. And so Joseph would say, well, this is how you use a hammer. This is how you use a plane. This is how you use the saw. This is how you make this cut. This is how you make that cut. This is how you use pegs. This is how you create joints. And Jesus would have done exactly what Joseph showed him to do. Jesus wouldn't have taken the hammer and said, oh, look, it's a hammer. I think I'm gonna take this screw out with the hammer. He wouldn't have taken the saw and used the saw as a hammer to drive in nails. No, he would have done exactly what the Father showed him to do. Jesus is using that apprenticeship language here to tell us, in the same way that Jesus the Son came to do only what the Father does, if you will, to use his tools in the same way 
to make the same cuts, to be about the same project. Jesus hasn't come to do his own thing or to exercise his own independence or to accomplish his own mission. No, Jesus does what the Father does. Which then raises the question, well, what does the Father actually do? And so Jesus will go on to say two further things. Yes, first of all, Jesus does what the Father does. But secondly, Jesus, the Son, judges as the Father does. The Son judges as the Father does. Now, one of the things, again, just a note about the text, one of the things that happens a lot in John's gospel uh, is he uses a lot, when he reports Jesus' speeches, he uses a lot of parallelism or repetition it's a way of, of re-emphasizing certain ideas or certain points and, and then even extending them. That happens here. Uh, you're going to notice language and themes in verses 21 to 24. They get repeated and extended in verses 25 to 30. And this parallelism or this repetition is reinforcing key ideas and especially this one, that the son judges as the father does. But why does, why does that happen? Why does the son judge as the father does? Or, or to put it differently, why does the father entrust judgment to the son? Why doesn't God the father simply carry out judgment on his own? Why is it that, that the father has entrusted judgment to the son so that the son judges as the father? Well, Jesus answers that question. Look at verse 22. He says, the, the father judges no one. But has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So why is judgment entrusted to the Son? Well, what have we just heard? Judgment is entrusted to the Son so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. So so why do people honor the Father in his judgment? Well, because he's God. And as God, he has the right, the prerogative to execute judgment. He has the right to rule, the right to declare one side in, in error and the other side in the right. And, and of course, God as Father has the right to execute and exercise ultimate judgment, to send someone to the place of his judicial wrath, to, to send someone to, to hell itself. And the Father has this right as judge because he is God. And all creation honors God as the rightful judge of the world. But notice, what Jesus is saying here, what he's telling us here, is that the Father has entrusted judgment, including the final judgment, to the Son, so that all will honor the Son. And honor him, why? Because he's God because he is God. Only God can execute ultimate judgment. And so if the Father has entrusted judgment, ultimate judgment, final judgment to the Son, then the Son is God. And who is the Son? Jesus is. That's what he's saying. He's saying that he is God. And as God, he does what God does does. That's why judgment is entrusted to him. But how will this judgment be rendered? How does the son execute or exercise judgment 
as the Father does. Well, Jesus goes on to tell you in the next section, in verse 27, you see it? And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus uses this language of the Son of Man. It's language that comes from Daniel chapter 7. There in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, a picture of the Father himself, gives authority represented by the books of life and death to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man exercises authority over his world. Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, I have been given authority to open the books to open the book of life, to open the book of judgment, and to exercise judgment. Jesus says, I have authority to call the dead from the tombs at the end of the age. And those who do the will of God, as Jesus will say in John 17, which is to believe in God and the one whom God has sent for eternal life, they'll enter into resurrection of life. But Jesus says here that those who reject the Son will stand before the Son on the last day at the judgment seat of Christ, having been raised from the dead only to face a resurrection of judgment, an eternity in torment and hell. Listen, it is not fashionable today to talk about this resurrection of judgment. It is not fashionable today to to picture an end of the age where Jesus is seated on his his throne, at his judgment seat, exercising final judgment, separating sheep and goats, discerning the thoughts and intents of the hearts, and damning people to hell. We much rather believe in a kind of universalistic God whose wideness of mercy is as wide as the east is from the west. And even if people reject Jesus in this life, that there'll be some opportunity at some future point in the afterlife where God will say, oh, never mind, y'all just come into heaven and come into my love. Friends, not only is that not true, it's not true according to Jesus. It's a lie according to Jesus. Because Jesus says the judgment has been entrusted to him and there will be a resurrection to judgment. There will be final reckoning. And there's final reckoning for those who reject Jesus as the Son of God, who reject Jesus as Savior of sinners. A final reckoning for them. But that's not all that Jesus says. He certainly is saying that the Son does as the Father does. And he certainly is saying, and he wants us to be clear, that the Son judges as the Father does. But there's a final thing he says here. Namely, the Son gives life as the Father does. And that too we've heard in this gospel In John chapter 3, we've heard that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, God's proper work, that which is proper to his nature or his character towards his world, is not ultimately judgment. Martin Luther uses these categories of proper work and alien work to help us understand something about who God is. God's proper work towards his, out of his own character or nature is not judgment, not wrath. 
It's his alien work, his strange work. It's necessary to demonstrate that he's infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably holy and just. But God's proper work, the work that's proper to his nature and proper to his character, is life. His proper work is salvation. And as the Father gives life, Jesus says, the Son does too. In fact, the Son gives life as the Father does, both now and then. Notice Jesus says that the the Son gives life now. Look at verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I think it's important for us to see that when Jesus speaks of giving life, he speaks of giving life now. He says, the hour is coming and is now here. And what happens with this hour that's now here? People hear Jesus's voice. They hear Jesus's word. They hear his purpose and his promise to rescue those who run to him in trust and faith. And what happens to them? They go from death to life. They go from darkness to light. They go from hopelessness to hope. What makes the difference? Jesus does. Jesus is the one who has this power to give life. Just as the Father does, which means what? I mean, who has power? to raise people from the dead spiritually? Who has power to transition someone from death to life in the present? Who has power to enter into our hearts where there's so much darkness and despair and to shine light so that we begin to see something of the beauty and excellency of this God who's come to us in Jesus Christ? Who has this power? God does. Which means that if Jesus' word, as he says in verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes me, who sent me, has eternal life. If Jesus' word can do this, it means he's God. And as God, he is resurrection and life. We'll see that later in John's gospel. But of course, you're familiar with it already because you hear it over and again at various funerals, don't you? The scene in John chapter 11 when Martha is deeply frustrated with Jesus because he he wasn't there to, to save and to heal and to rescue her brother Lazarus. And what does Jesus tell her? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Did you get that? Everyone who, be- who lives and believes in me shall never die. How-, how is that possible? How does that work? That even when we come to our dying day, we don't actually die. Yes, our bodies may go to sleep for a time. They may rest in their graves as in a bed, as our catechisms teach us. But that we don't die. How is that possible? Because we've heard Jesus' voice. We've heard Jesus' voice shouting in our hearts, 
shouting in our hearts to trust him and to believe in him. And then he's given us power because he's moved us from death to life to believe in him and to believe in the God who sent him. And the result is what? Resurrection and life now. Eternal life now. Life in the age to come that's invaded our present so that suddenly things make sense in God's world. We're not pushing against it. We're not rebelling against it. Rather, we're living in step with God and his world. So that, so that real life is possible for us now. And we, we show what it looks like to be more alive than we realize. To be sure, our bodies are wasting away. Our bodies are breaking down. But inside, in our real selves, we, we're alive to God, alive to his world, alive to his beauty, alive to his glory, alive to his work, alive to his way. You are more alive now than you could possibly know or realize because you've heard the voice of Jesus. More alive than you possibly can know or realize because Jesus has given you life now. But not just now, friends. <laughs> This Jesus who gives life now will also give us life then. Look again at verse 28. What does Jesus say there? He says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Where are these people again? What does Jesus say? Those who are, when all who are in their tombs, those who are in their tombs. And Jesus says there's an hour coming. It's not yet here. There's an hour coming when Jesus's voice will be heard and those who are in their tombs will come out. Listen, what does that mean? It means perhaps today, if you end up over at Memorial Gardens, perhaps you go over there to check on a loved one's graveside because of all the ice and the trees, and maybe it's a spouse or a parent or even a child, and you go over there, and you look around that space, and all those people who are in those tombs who've been there for well over a hundred years, some of them. Jesus is saying that those who are in those tombs, they will hear his voice and they will be raised from the dead and for those who have trusted in him which is in fact the good that he's looking for the good that's required which is rest and faith and trust in jesus christ they shall be raised to a resurrection of life new life abundant life body and soul put together again to live in a new world with a body made new friends that's the christian hope And it's at the very center of the gospel that we preach. We're going to look at this in the run-up to Easter in 1 Corinthians 15. But but there the Apostle Paul teaches us that as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. When will that happen? When the final trump shall sound and the the voice of the archangel is heard and Jesus' voice is heard, then the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. How do we know that's going to happen? How do we know that is going to happen, that Jesus is going to give us life then? Well, certainly Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of that. But actually, John's gospel gives us a picture of what that will look like then. There in John chapter 11, remember? Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb and he tells them to roll back the stone 
And there's objections from the crowd. Why? Because he's been dead four days. Lord, he stinks. He's already decomposing. No matter. Jesus stands outside that grave and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he came out. And that's a picture of what's going to happen on the last day. Jesus is going to stand there in in the clouds of glory as he's returning to earth. And he's going to be saying, Steve, come out. Alice, come out. Nick, come out. Dorothy, come out. Luther, come out. And they will come out. Though they were dead, completely dead, resting in their graves for decades and decades and years and years, yet Jesus will give life. He gives life because the Son gives life as the Father does. That's why we're taught to believe and to sing, Jesus lives and so shall I. Thy death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. Why is he your hope and trust this morning? Because he does what the Father does. Because Jesus is God himself. And as God, he will surely accomplish all of his purposes and all of his promises. Friends, there's no other God beside Jesus. He is the one whose whose face is full of love for you. He will do what he promises. Because he is God for us in our salvation. Thanks, thanks be to God. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for these great promises that you shall raise us from the dead, that, that Jesus is the Son of God. You give life, both now but also then, because this is who you are. You are the only God there is the God who is Father, Son, Spirit. And so, Lord, though we don't fully grasp all of these mysteries, we do believe them and confess them and teach them because they are true. They are what you teach us to believe. Lord, we come now to this table and we, we dis- deeply desire for you to meet with us here by your Spirit, to reassure our hearts that these things are real and true and for us. And so, Lord, use word, sacrament, and prayer this day to accomplish your good purpose in our hearts and to give us new hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the